I'd like to turn, please, if you turn with me to the uh, Gospel of Matthew and chapter 11. Matthew and chapter 11. Now, I'm not really sure. Sometimes as I get senior moments, uh, I'm not sure whether I have sometimes preached a message before. and Whether I've done this before or not is immaterial because I'm very aware of the Lord's uh, guidance to speak on this subject this morning. So, therefore, I'm not too worried if I ha- actually have spoken before uh, to you. But um, I'm very conscious that there is at least one person today that God really wants to speak to um, in, in the gathering. I'm sure there are others, but I know that there's one person that God has his uh, finger to point at and something he wants to communicate to you. And it's a very wonderful thing when God speaks to us and when God uh, puts his hand on our life. It's a very precious thing, and we ought to appreciate it, and we ought to always grab and lay hold of what God says into our hearts as his children. So we're going to read. It's a familiar passage of Scripture, but we don't want familiarity to take away the potency and power of the words of our Lord Jesus. Uh, So we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to just break in at the verse 28. Matthew chapter 11 and the verse 28. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, And you shall find rest unto your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen, and we know God will bless the public reading of his word. Let's unite in prayer for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who has come, and all over the earth the Spirit is moving. And we pray this morning that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. As has been prayed, we pray that you will put a hedge around us, Lord. And as you spoke of Israel, you said, I will put a wall, or I will be a wall of fire, around about you, and the glory in the midst. We pray for a canopy, a divine covering over us, and we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will take your word and speak into our hearts, that your word would be mixed with faith, and we would be profited by it. So, Lord, I ask for help as I give myself entirely to you, I claim your cleansing and sanctifying power on my spirit, my soul, and my body. And I ask that in all things, the Lord Jesus Christ would be greatly magnified. And I pray that for your glory and for his glory. Amen and amen. I got converted over, oh, 40 years ago now. And uh, I was converted through the ministry of the late Reverend Sam Workman. 
And I can remember the crowds coming to the uh, tent campaign that was held in Kiliman. And I think at that time, on one night, there was anything up to a, a thousand people came to the tent. Uh, it was just, they dropped the sides of the tent. The crowds were so great. Uh, many came to the Lord at that time. I heard that at least a hundred came to the Lord at that mission, who's to know in crowds like that what God does. But I certainly was one of them, and uh, I was greatly taken by the evangelist. He ministered uh, to my life many times subsequent to that. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that there were preachers who had an anointing and preachers who didn't, that there were men whose God's spirit rested on, and when they spoke, God spoke through them, and others that spoke, and it was really just dead men's brains, something that they'd read in a book, and it it kind of helped your mind a bit, but didn't speak to your heart. And I had to discover and had to learn that there's such a thing called the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Mr. Workman had that privilege of living and preaching under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and his ministry was very, very productive and fruitful. Uh, But Foolishly, uh, the following year, he had meetings, or a year or two later, he had meetings in Armagh, or outside Armagh. And it was to be held in a small hall, and it only held about 70 people. And I remember thinking, this is ridiculous, holding Christians' meetings in in a little tiny hall that holds maybe 70. What will they do with the people that come to hear this man? So I arrived, oh, about an hour early. Well, I sat at seven o'clock and half seven and twenty to eight, and I'm thinking, am I at the right place? And then at about ten to eight, people began to filter in, about thirty of them. And the evangelists come in. I was to discover a very valuable lesson, and that was that when it comes to the gospel, many will go to hear it. But when it comes to the deeper Christian life, well, you'll not get as many there. And that has always been the case. Uh, Christians uh, like being told and telling sinners that they need to be saved, but when it comes to searching our hearts and our lives, then very often people are not too appreciative. And I was to learn, and that's a very valuable lesson to learn. But why I'm telling you this is that particular night, I was just a young Christian, converted, knew I was saved, but having deep internal conflicts I didn't understand the complexity of what the Bible calls the flesh or the self-life. I knew I was saved, but boy, there were many things I was thinking and doing that were not conducive to the Christian life, and behavior and secret behavior was certainly not above board in regard to God. I would not like God to have exposed just all that was going on in my life. And so I went along to these meetings, and Mr. Workman uh, took these two verses, and what he preached on was the second rest. The second rest, that's what he preached on. And the first one is very apparent in verse 28. Come on to me, Jesus is here speaking to to the people, and he just says to them, come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the first rest spoken of. And you know, as sinners, we are burdened down, and some people feel it and some don't. And perhaps you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, you've never come to Christ in your life, and you maybe don't even feel the need to come. 
In fact, you could be very much in the category of saying, I don't even want to be here today. And uh, you wouldn't be the first to say that, and you'll not be the last. Reminds me of the little boy, the two boys that were in uh, the store, and uh, they were playing with their toys, and suddenly the older one realized that uh, mother was gone, and he began to cry. And he ran about crying through the store, Mommy, Mommy, I'm lost, I'm lost, Mommy, Mommy. And eventually this security man met him. He said, Son, what seems to be the problem? He said, I'm lost, I'm lost. Mommy has wandered off, I'm lost. And uh, so he settled him down and he said, my brother, he's over here and need him too. And he says, well, is, is, is he lost? He says, yes, he's lost, but he says he doesn't know he's lost. Never dawned on him. He was still playing away. You can be lost and not know you're lost. And there could be someone here this morning, you're lost and you don't know you're lost. But you see that we're burdened down. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And of course, Jesus is really widely speaking about the effects of the fall of man. Adam, when he was created by God, was a perfect being. He was made in God's image. He, the one great thing that's obvious about Adam, I love the first three chapters of Genesis, the account of what happened, because it's obvious when you look out in this world, there's something badly wrong. Uh, I mean, you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to have many uh, brain cells to know there's something fundamentally wrong with this world. And also, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Not just the world, but me. There's all these contradictions inside me. There's this awareness that I need to do right. Where does that come from? That I sense that I need to do the right thing, and yet I do the wrong thing. Why do I do the wrong thing? And the Bible has much to say about that, but sin, sin entered the human race. And, of course, the wages of sin is death, and God came and told Adam, he said, I really want you to walk with me. I want you to enjoy my fellowship. And that was the plan for eternity. Death was never God's plan. It wasn't the plan. God intended that Adam would live forever in God's presence. And essentially, that's what heaven is. That's why death is essential. We don't like death. Death is so final. It is such an abrupt wrenching from everything in the physical world that we know, a complete severance in every way. Why does it have to be so brutal? Because God must cut off sin. God must cut off the impact of Satan and sin and darkness And so for that to be effective, the sword must come and we're divided until the time of the resurrection when ultimate salvation, our soul goes directly to God at death, but ultimately we're completely redeemed when our bodies are then raised from the grave. Hopefully they go to the grave, but um, whenever they go to the grave, they'll be resurrected. Something of that body, the DNA in that body will be resurrected and we will return and we will have a glorified body, a body that won't sin, a body that will have no fear, a body that, that will never have the, the, the traumas of life that happen in our life or in others. That just won't happen. That was God's intention. 
Now, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wills all men to be saved. I want to tell you today, God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be eternally with him in heaven. He doesn't want you to be lost. He doesn't want you to go to hell or the lake of fire because he ordained those for the devil and his angels. That was God's plan in the construction of hell. He doesn't want you to go there. But you see, although God wills all men to be saved, God, and I speak reverently because I don't have full comprehension of God, but I'm speaking in a language we can understand, God made this great decision for you and I, and it was to give us this liberty, this freedom. It's like, it's like I said to my children, especially when they were younger, I want you to keep your room tidy. That's my will. I will that the rooms are tidy. Okay? But then I make this decision to give them freedom. And I say, I'm giving you freedom now. Well, Whenever you go up to the room, have you any idea what's going to be there? Some cases it might be tidy. One daughter in particular. Son, you know, they're better now. You give them freedom. You will the room to be tidy, but the room's not tidy. And so it is, God wills you to be saved, but he has given you this amazing freedom. It's called choice. You give it to Adam. It's a risk. It's a risk God took with man. It's a risk that in his wisdom he's prepared to carry through so that you'll not be in heaven against your will. God will have nobody in heaven who didn't want to be there. He'll not have anybody who didn't want him in their life. God will facilitate the choices. That is an amazing gift from God. Choice. He lets you do it this morning. He could come in with angels. He could let all hell let loose against you. He could do many things upon you, but he gives you amazing freedom. You just walk in and you walk out and God says, I let you choose. Wonderful. Some people choose to go the way of sin. They choose the way of the devil. But then there's people like Joshua. What did Joshua say? As for me, And my house, my family, we will serve the Lord. That's our choice. (laughs) And that needs to be our choice as Christians. So, Mr. Workman preached not only on the first rest of coming to Christ, making that choice, and finding salvation. Now, that happened to me when I was 16, 17. And I'm so grateful. I look back over 40 years, I'm amazed at the faithfulness of God. I'm amazed at the goodness and the kindness of God. I'm amazed at the forgiveness of God in my life. I really am genuinely amazed. I'm so thankful for all the things he has done for me. And I wonder why. Why did you do that? Why did you come into my life? Why did you speak to me? Why have you done these things for me? I didn't deserve any of them. But he has just been so good. Because God is good. God is good, my friend. He's a good father. So here we have, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Have you come to him? Have you come to him? You say, well, Alan, I would love to come to him, but 
had a, a lady with me recently. She came and she had been a Christian when she was younger. And she said, uh, and when I was speaking to her in my study, she says, you know, I, but she says, you know, Christians haven't behaved very well. And she talked about her mom and her dad and her family. And I, she started to tell me about churches and what they'd done on her and what Christians had done. And I just listened and absorbed all this. And I don't know what she was expecting me to say, but I said, I agree with you. I agree. I said, they are gossips. I says, they can be cruel. I says, sometimes they do dreadful things. They say terrible things. I said, yes. I don't know whether she was expecting that. She says, I have no idea where I could go. You know, what church? I says, I agree. I agree. But I said, I I understand. But what has Jesus done to you? What has he done? I said, you might be using this as an excuse to get off the hook so that you can legitimately say, well, I can't be a Christian. I I can't follow the Lord. Look at the way they behave. Look at this one. Look at that one. My dear friend, you're not asked to look at any Christian, even your mother or your father. You're not asked to look at them. Now, I have to say, mother and father, your children will look at you. They will. And I have sat numerous times in my study and listened to children telling about their mother and father being gossips, being worldly, living for the world, the contradictions in their lives. And they never, ever addressed it. They just lived like that. And they were at the prayer meeting one night, and then they were big gossips the next night. My friends, the children see that. They see that. And my friend, it's going to be hard to win them. It's going to be hard to win them. I remember a story being told of this evangelist in South Africa, and he was preaching the gospel. And as he was preaching, this man who had been uh, in meetings, he sat. And he, he was in a home where he was a servant. And in that home in Africa as a servant, his master was a Christian, but he didn't really live it. Do you get, you get the drift? He didn't really live it. He had a big Bible, he knew the language, but he didn't live it. He was in the meeting, in front of him. But then there was a little black maid, a little lady that was black, and she, well, she loved the Lord, but she was, as we would say, the real McCoy. There's not many of them, but she was the real McCoy. And she was sitting just beside him. And so the preacher said, will you come to Jesus? And his boss turned around and looked at him and said, will you come to my Jesus? And the fellow looked and he thought, no. (laughs) No, I wouldn't come to your Jesus. No. And the little black lady, she leaned over and she said, will you come to my Jesus? Oh, he said, yes. I'll come to your Jesus. (laughs) My friend, what Jesus? What Jesus are you carrying? To the people in work. To the people out there that are dying. And you are the signpost. 
the story is told of a lighthouse. And the lighthouse was shining and a storm came and the glass was broke. And the lighthouse keeper, instead of being diligent to replace the glass, he went and he bought a piece of wood and he stuck it in. No panic. Get it done. A great ship that night was going through those dark stretches of water looking for the lighthouse. But it couldn't see the lighthouse because there was one piece dark. And it struck the rock. And the ship and the people were lost because there was one part dark. And my dear Christian friend, if there's one part dark, then people around you will strike the rock. It needs to be light everywhere, everywhere, that the light can get out and that we can be good reflectors of the Lord Jesus to a world that is dying. Oh, Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then Mr. Workman preached on the second rest. I had never heard it before. You see, what I was told was that now I had been converted and I was going to kind of like a brethren assembly. Good people, don't get me wrong, I'm not here. Good people. They were very kind to me. Most of them now are with the Lord, and I loved them very much. And they were kind to me. And I was told that if I was baptized, which you do need to be baptized, by the way. If you were baptized and then you come into fellowship, then read your Bible, say your prayers, and you know. And uh, I was doing that. I was doing all I was told to do, and I did it as rigorously as I could. And I was involved in open airs, but there were these issues inside. Not resolved. Could it be that there's someone here this morning? Now, you might be this morning doing very well spiritually, and you say, Alan, I'm, I'm enjoying the Lord, and I'm living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm doing... Well, listen. Hallelujah. That's great. I probably am not here to speak to you today. I'm here to speak to people who can identify with what I'm talking about, and that is, you have been diligent, you have done all that you were told to do by the clergy, by the denomination, whatever emphasis it placed on your life, you have done those things to the best of your ability, but you say, Alan, it's not working too well. To be absolutely frank and honest with you, I'm I'm trying my best, but it's not working too well. And I don't think that I'm really much of a reflector of the Lord at the moment. And if that's where you are, then I want you to hold yourself into the belt, belt down, and I'm going to speak to you and try and help you this morning. Because that's exactly where I was in those meetings. And Mr. Workman began to give me hope. Because he began to tell me from the Word of God that there was a second rest a second rest. 
Now, when I was a young Christian at that stage, I was probably coming to the latter end of the great conventions that were held in this province. There were great, great conventions being held by different groups and organizations, and they were called, I suppose, the deeper Christian life or holiness conventions, whatever. Now, they're gone now. They're gone. This message now is largely relegated to the past, and one of the reasons uh, that it's relegated is because the church is so sick. One of the other reasons it's relegated is because many people have settled for spiritual apathy and death. Many don't know how to go forward with God. They just don't know. And they have done all that their church has told them, and some are settling for it. Some are internally, uh, you know, twisted about it. And you know, it's tragic. So there's been a real decline because, as I said, I was uh, in the in the early uh, years, I was in faith mission. I remember 30 years ago, I remember um, different preachers came way back at that time, and they preached very clearly on the need for an encounter with God after conversion, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. This second rest. Old W.P. Nicholson, the revival uh, preacher in Ulster in the 1920s, well, he took the view that he called it the second blessing. Well, that's not too scriptural to use those terminologies, and anybody that was against anything beyond conversion, boy, they took, they took uh, uh, really, you know, the fight against second blessing. They didn't like that terminology. Well, I think the words of a great preacher is, I don't care what you call it, just get it. I like that. I don't care what you call it, just get it. And the church needs something. The church of Jesus Christ needs something, my dear friend, and it's more than more technology. It's more than more money. It's more than bigger buildings. We need something fundamental. Fundamental. At the very core and root of our being, we need something that only God can give us, that only God can impart to us, to make us the people that God intends us to be. And so I want to briefly speak about that second rest. You see, friends, Jesus said, take on to me, or take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, here's the image. In Old Testament times, there was a yoke. The yoke was just like a, a big bar of wood with two hooks like this here in it, and what happened was you had a senior oxen. The oxen was used to pulling the plow, but you needed two. And the plow would pull down the middle, and the man would come behind, and so you had the two oxen. And this was the yoke that connected the both. Okay? Now, the way it was, was that the senior oxen, who was older, he was well used to plowing. So he knew the way. He had been well taught by the one who was leading, or the man behind who was you know, giving him guidance, and he knew how to run the plough and keep the forest straight. But then they would bring in a new ox. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. The new ox came in, and the new ox had to be tied in with the ox that already was doing the work. And, you know, it was problems. The young ox would pull, and it wasn't nice getting your neck caught in this thing. Jesus said, now that you have come to me, Now that you're my child, I'm inviting you again. I'm coming to you again. He said, come on to me. Well, you say, I have come. Uh, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, when I was five, I came. That's wonderful. 
But have you responded to his second invitation? Take my yoke upon you. Now, I was brought up on the farm, and we used to use what was called a crush. For those of you who are not familiar with farming, the crush was a metal device that you'd put the animal into, and you'd catch its head, and any farmer knows that most times an animal didn't like that. And uh, I used to have the job of pulling the cord. I was told that it was pretty simple. That was why I was given it. And you pulled the cord, and when the animal put his head through, you pulled the cord, and the head's caught, and then the boy would go bonkers. You were glad to be away with the cord away out of the way. Didn't like it. Didn't like it. The animal preferred to be out in the field running free around the hedges and, you know, enjoying himself. Jesus said, this is what happens to you when you get converted. He said, God has a plan for your life. He said, I'm in the furrow. I'm in the yoke. I'm carrying the yoke and the furrow's coming. That's the word of God. That's the will of God for your life. But here's the problem. Jesus said, you're running around the field. You're running around the field. You're enjoying yourself, but the problem is you think that you're free, but you're not free. You think you're doing well, but you're not doing well. Jesus said, I give you your first rest. I have a second rest for you. I would love you to have it. But you're going to have to volunteer to come into this crush, to come into this yoke. He said, I'm inviting you. Do you want to come? Now, as I've said, Christians meetings, don't get the crowds. (laughs) People that want to go all out for God, to really know God, to walk with God. Think of Noel Grant, that lovely little hymn, and no doubt he learned it from experience. The price is high, severe the test for those who would enjoy God's best. Surrender all and take the road with those who will go through with God. How true. How true. So Jesus is inviting us into this restricted area. We don't like that. Jesus is saying, you have to stop running the field and come in alongside me. So friends, without the yoke, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that there's two people. Okay, let's simplify it for you. There's two people. Let me um, use the verse. You can look it up in your leisure. Galatians 2 and 20. We've preached on this before. One of the most wonderful verses, in my opinion, in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is relating his own testimony. He's telling of his experience as a missionary, as a martyr, ultimately. He said, I am crucified with Christ, or I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. There's the first person. I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. There's the problem. Two people in the one body. Christ and I. If Christ is in you, you've got the same problem. Christ and you, both in the one body. Both pulling for to get control, even though you're a Christian. And if you're truly a Christian, you'll understand what I mean when you talk about wanting your own way. God says, do it this way. You say, no, I want to do it this way. 
And so you're aware of that battle. I wasn't long converted until I discovered that there were desires and things coming into my life and heart, and I did things I shouldn't have done. And I got down, I'm sure you, some of you can identify, and I got down my knees, I said, oh God, I'll never do that again. I'll never fail you again. Do you ever make those foolish promises to God? Do you ever do that? Lord, I'll stand up for you. <laughs> And then a day or two passes and a week and you're back there again. Lord, I'll, what I'll do for you. And you really meant it. And you really meant it. You see, what was happening was you had two people ruling the one body, Christ and you. Paul says, it is no longer I that liveth, Christ liveth in me. Paul said, something has happened, I Now, without going into it in depth, you can read it at your leisure. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, Paul is alluding undoubtedly to his early experience as a Christian where he says, and I'm paraphrasing it, he says, the good that I want to do as a Christian, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I do. Then in despair, almost, he cries out, who shall deliver me? I'm in this terrible dilemma. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then Romans 8 comes in, and it's all to do with the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's another chapter in the Bible that talks as much about the Holy Spirit. Because what Paul is discovering in Romans 8 is the solution to the I problem is the Holy Spirit. So you have two people inside. You have I and you have Christ. And initially, after conversion, this is the general experience of the believer. You want to really follow the Lord. You want to do what's right. You go to the best church you can go to. You get a hold of the doctrines you're taught. You begin to lay down the emphasis where you've been guided, and you do your best. But undoubtedly, you still discover, I've still that bad temper. The lust still has control. The tongue is still wild as it ever was. And there are all these areas that are not under control. And I find myself on my knees before God, earnestly saying, God, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. One of the subtleties of the self-life, or what's called the flesh, which remains when we get converted... It is from that self-life that all these things spring, the temper, the lust. The, the, in the book of Galatians chapter 5, it just talks about all the evidence of the flesh. And the flesh is very subtle, very powerful, and very subtle. And how the flesh works is that, basically I'm throwing it under a few headings very quickly. First of all, it is self-seeking. Now, if you're wise enough and you have enough discernment from the Holy Spirit, you'll find people who, and the thing is, flesh can really be quite operative even at the highest echelons of the church. In the pulpit, in the elders, in the leaders, flesh can be very dominant. And unless everybody in the church, elders, deacons, the whole jolly lot, unless they apply these truths, then they will operate out of self as well. And so there's self-seeking. That is ambition. That is not God's ambition. 
So people are self-seeking. Now that's a, just look at the world today. You don't have to see ambition. Talking to somebody the other day and they were saying about a Christian, he's getting into his mid-sixties. And when you're getting into mid-sixties, most people I meet, they're beginning to say, well, I've got to cool down a wee bit because, you know, it's getting that time. I don't think God ever has retirement for anybody, not as a Christian anyway. You've no retirement. One boy says, you've got, uh, you've got new threads just. That's the only retirement you get, new threads. But whenever a person comes to that age, this particular Christian was telling me, he said about a guy, and he says, you know, he has, he has, he has just got to that age. He has hardly time to get to church. He has hardly time to get to a prayer meeting. I don't even know if he goes. But, he, but he's buying more land. He, he's building more properties. He is, he, he's just driving forward. Now, there's nothing wrong with driving forward. Don't get me wrong. But what I want to know is where is God in all this? That's what I want to find out. Where is God in all this? I would like to think that if I got to 65, I would be beginning to think, you know, yeah, I've still got to do things. I've still got to get money to pay bills. I've still, But really what I would be thinking is, ought I not to be focused on winning the lost for Jesus Christ? Ought I not be utilizing my finance, if I'm gifted in, in making finance, to forward the gospel? So, so self has its own ambitions. Then, of course, there's self-admiration. Remember the late Ivan Thompson said about, you know, as people get up on a Sunday night, I used to laugh when he said this, he said, people get up on a Sunday night and you say, you know, I'm nobody. <laughs> Christian, I'm nobody. And he says, dare somebody tell them that on Monday morning. You're nobody. Boy, he says, they rise up. <laughs> That's flesh. That's self. Defending self. The last two things self will ever relinquish is the love of money, your wallet in your hip pocket, and your reputation. Those are the two final boys. There's a whole lot of them, but those are the final boys. And if those boys aren't nailed, you'll operate in the flesh. And most Christians do, even pastors. Operate in the flesh. As I said, there are some who are into self-denial. They say, well, I'm, I'm really disciplining my life after God. I'm really doing And the flesh can do that. But you've still got the two people. You've I and you've Christ. But you're making all these decisions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to serve God. <laughs> then you get those that are full of self-pity. You know, really control freaks. And they begin to cry. If you say anything, begin to cry. It's trying to control you. Boy, self's a rotten thing. Flesh is a rotten thing. So, very quickly, that's, that's what it is to be without the yoke. That's how you're operating. You're wild in the field. You're wild in the field. But the Lord says, come in alongside me. Now, I'm the senior one. I know the furrow. I know the journey. I know how to do this. Come in. So he says, come on, choose to come in. And so you make a choice. You say, God, I will come. Lord Jesus, I will come to you. I'll come in alongside you, Lord Jesus. Now let me tell you, when you come along and in alongside, there will still be the enemy tempting you to say, come on, it was better when you were out in the field. And then you'll get the drive. You say, I want to really push forward, Lord, with you. And, and the Bible says, don't be like the horse. And then you say, Lord, I don't like going with you. This, this is hard, Lord. I'm pulling back. The Bible says, don't be like the mule. 
get in alongside. He said, take the yoke upon you. You see, my dear friends, usually anybody coming to the yoke, and this is important, is that it is preceded by catastrophic failure, generally. Catastrophic failure. You see, when God saved me, why didn't he deal with this lust in me? If I just could get rid of this lust, I would be such a wonderful Christian. Do you think so? Oh, if God had just dealt with my tongue and my tongues, God had only dealt with that. I've prayed so many times, God, and I've told people, I'm sorry, Lord, please, why don't you deal with my tongue? Because your tongue is only a fruit of the problem. The problem's much deeper. The problem is, I is alive. I wants its way. Self is still alive. Self is still in control. Self has the last decision. It's not your tongue. It's not your lust. It's not the love of the world. It is I. Paul said that's the problem. I. I. This is why Christianity is so radical. How did Paul accomplish what he accomplished? How did he become the amazing man he did come? How do many others do it? How do they do it? Because they come to an experience of God in their personal lives through the things that God permits to happen in their life. They come to a place where they recognize I is a disaster. They come to the place where they say, God, I'm not making any more promises about what I'm going to do for you because I can't keep them. God says, hallelujah, they're getting it. God, I'm not going to promise to do any big thing for you. Round of applause. Get the angels around them. Give them a round of applause. They're getting it. Lord, I'm a failure. Hallelujah, you're getting it. Now, you have to really get it. Lord, I'm not trusting myself anymore. That's the way it needs to go. I don't know where you are on the journey. I don't know. Some are further on than others. Lord, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of all the promises I've made. I'm sick of getting down and saying, I'll not do this. And I've tried going to the prayer meetings more. And I've, I've said, I'll be diligent at this and diligent at that. And I've, I've done what the elders told me. And I've been baptized. And I've done, and you've done it all. And Lord, I'm, this is where I am. And God said, yes, because man can't solve this. The problem's I. Oh, God, what am I to do? Lord, what am I to do? How am I going to walk with you? How am I going to get to know you the way that you want? Well, God says, I've already dealt with. What? It's already dealt with. What? 2,000 years ago, when my son died on the cross, the I in you died with him. It's already dead. But Lord, it's not dead. It's alive. But God said, no, it is dead. It is dead. God says, I have dealt with I. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Paul always emphasized the work of the cross, not just as the place where he came to 
to get forgiveness, but the place that he got on to, to die. And Paul experienced, now this is more than theory, he experienced co-death with Christ. It's already dealt with. Your self-life and your sin were both dealt with at the cross. You say, well, Alan, how does that work? Well, practically how it works is you come to the realization by the Holy Spirit in your life that you say, God, I'm absolutely tired, wearied, and fed up with where I am. Lord, I repent for my sin. And Lord, I don't trust myself anymore. I'm making no more covenants, no promises of what I'm going to be or do for God. Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. I need your mercy. I need your spirit in me. I need Jesus to take over because I can't do it. God says, that's it. You've got it. That's the key. It's simple, yet profound. And so Jesus said, come on, take the yoke on. Stop running around the field. Come on, get in alongside me. Take the yoke upon me. We say, (coughs) this has to be voluntary, my friends. He won't get you the way we used to get animals and get gates lined up and they didn't know where they were doing they were running all of a sudden their head was in and I pulled the cord God's not going to do that with you voluntary God I come I come to you Lord I come to you Lord I'm living for this world I'm living for material things and if I'm spared another 20, 30, 40 years it's over and then what then what Who am I living for? Who am I living for? I. Oh, God, please, help me to live with eternity's values in view. Help me, oh God, to live for the things that matter and that will matter whenever I'm in eternity and when I come to die. My friend, I've been with people who came to die and and in their deathbed and never once did any of them say, I wish I'd made more money. Never once. I wish I'd made more money. I wish I'd bought more land. You know they say, oh, Christians, I wish I'd sought God more. I wish I'd put God first in my life. I'm trying to become very godly now. I'm trying to get all my life sorted out now when the valley of death is before me. But my friend, you can't rush this thing. You can't rush it. So you get your chance. Jesus said, come, come. Get in alongside me. Oh, I come in alongside him. And then he says, learn of me. (laughs) When you're inside, beside the ox, beside Christ, my dear friend, you can hear his voice. When you're running the field, you can't hear the other ox. You can't hear the master. On many occasions, I've prayed with people in my study. And God has set them free from different things that are in their lives that are crushing and breaking them and and recently, I had a young man came to see me from Belfast. And whenever we were praying, he had said to me, I'm saved 20 years, but Alan, I've heard preachers, I've heard ministers, I've heard pastors. I've never heard the voice of God. <laughs> I said, thank God you realize that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. We prayed with him, and God wonderfully set him free regarding certain things in his life. And as I sat and I watched him, As I saw God working in this young man's life, 
the tears began to well up and he began to cry uncontrollably. I knew God was doing something in his life. I knew it was a holy moment in his life when God the Creator was coming to speak to him. And I sat and I just let God work in his life. And he wept and he looked at me and he said, Alan, God has spoken to me. I said, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. God speaks. Getting in alongside the master. Near to his voice. Jesus said, if you come in alongside, he said, you will learn from me. I'll educate you. Listen, I have been in denominations, different groups, and so on over the years. And as I've said, every group, whatever they are, whatever flavor of evangelical group you're in, they'll all teach you whatever they see is the most important thing, and that's fine. But one thing I have learned is this, that no matter what denomination or group is teaching you, there's always inclined to be some kind of a bias in the teaching. It's just the nature of man. But when you come alongside the master and you get yoked in beside him and you just begin to listen, he said, I'll educate you. And there'll be no bias. And I'll give you the right emphasis in your life. You see, dear friends, and my time's gone, but you know, there are some... I've been talking to more people this week about churches and fighting. I heard more, I was telling Bertie before, more churches fighting and splitting. And one of them I've heard about, they have a split, and the split's about hats. Now, head covering is important. The Bible talks about it. But the thing that I find very amazing is this. That there are certain churches, and they say, you've got to have the hats issue right. You've got to have the Bible issue right, whatever translation. And you've got to have all these things, and maybe you have to wear a tie, and whatever it might be, but you've got to get all these things. And they have all these things stipulated that are important. And don't get me wrong, some of these things are important. Don't get me wrong. But they say these are the things that really matter to God. You see, well, what I would anticipate, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, what I would anticipate is if I went to that church that had everything that God really cared about and they had that all sorted, would you expect the presence of God in that place? Would you expect the power of God to be released, that that God's anointing would be on that place and on that ministry? That's what I would anticipate, but many of them it's not. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that their emphasis is in the wrong place. That tells me that they're missing the truth that God wants to communicate. And let me tell you, friends, what the heart of the truth is. I must die. Because Paul said, it is no longer I that liveth. But listen to these words. Christ lives in me. Wow. Christ lives in me. He said, I am not alive anymore. Yeah, I've still got an intellect. I'm still called Paul, but the old Paul's gone, nailed to the cross, he said. And he said, as I abide and as I stay closed in beside Christ, 
as I come in alongside him. And he puts his arm around me. He said, Alan, or whoever you are, he said, listen, my yoke is easy. Oh, my friend, the Christian life and the life of the Christian is hard. There are burdens, there are weights, there are anxieties, there are cares, and they are so burdening that you actually are down. You're burdened down with them. You have yokes of heaviness on you. Jesus said, if you come alongside me, he said, I'll educate you. You can learn of me. And then he said, if you keep walking with me, he said, you will find rest. Rest in the storm. Rest in all the burdens because the senior ox takes the weight of the plow. The work is still being done, my friend. The plow is still being pulled, but you're not taking the weight anymore because you've transferred it. You've got in alongside and you said, God, I don't know what to do. I'm a bit of a mess, Lord. I have no trust in myself, but I'm abandoning all to you, Lord, that you would come and take complete control of every part of my personality, that you would fill me, Lord, with your presence, that, Lord, I identify with my death in Romans 6 and 6, that I was crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that liveth but Christ. And as you, my friend, yield and trust, then the miracle begins to happen. Then the life of Christ begins to come through. Then the mind of Christ begins to become active in your mind and Christ's thoughts begin to take over your thoughts. For some people, it's almost like a second conversion. For others, it is a gradual realization that God is doing something wonderful in me. God is changing my heart. God is changing my desires. God is bringing me into the realm of eternity and the things that are eternal. And he's moving me away from the temporal. He's drawing me away from the things that don't really matter and ultimately will be burned up with the fire of God's judgment. My friend, that's what happens. That's what happens. That's why I remember the late Raven, Leonard Ravenhill said, whenever the apostle Paul died, Ravenhill said in humor, that the devil and all the demons went on holidays for 24 hours. They needed a break. They needed a break. This guy has harassed us. This guy has ransacked our kingdom. This guy has went into the darkest places in Asia where the devil held sway, where his seat was, where his kingdom was, and he has wrenched people out and formed churches where people are seeking God and living in the power of the Holy Spirit and praying and knowing God and the light is shining out over the earth. Yes, my friends. Had Paul not died to himself... No such churches would ever have been there. He would simply have been a great communicator, a very clever man who was in the local church. But he wasn't because he died.
I invite you to die. I invite you this morning to embrace death. And when you do, the other side is resurrection power. He'll teach you. He'll be with you. And he says, you will find rest (laughs) to your soul. My friend, I commend to you the second rest. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray now, Lord, by your Spirit, that you would carry the truths, Lord, that have been conveyed into the hearts of men and women and young people. I pray for those today, Lord, who you have wanted to speak to. And I ask that, Lord, you will use this word today to bring them to a place of liberty, freedom, and fullness in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.